0: in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, In a piece of the Bible that I think we we often misunderstand. And what I'd like to do today is kind of an old-fashioned Bible study. I'd like to go through, uh, read a little bit, make some comments, read a little bit more in an effort to to help us better understand who God wants us to be and how God wants us to live. So, Matthew chapter 19, uh, verse 16. Now behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, let's stop there for a second. What was this question? Right. What, what good deed? So we already know something about this guy. Now, he's commonly called the rich young ruler. That's in the name of the passage. But we know that whoever this guy is, he, he clearly thinks in terms of actions, things that have to be performed, things that have to be achieved. He's thinking a little bit about a checklist. What's the thing that I've got to do? What do I have to perform in order to, what, what was this question? What, do I, what good deed do I have to do in order to, to, to get eternal life? Alright. Uh, now we're going to geek out for just a moment, okay? Every English translation of the Bible translates that phrase that way, eternal life. But it's a bit misleading, okay? The, the, the Greek word is aeonios, um, and, and it it, it is properly translated eternal life, but that gives you kind of the wrong idea. Um, because in the, in, the, in the great realm of literature, when it's used, whether it's philosophy or religion or whatever, it, it, it doesn't mean life without ceasing. What it means is God life, or life befitting God. It means you're caught up in the great warp and woof of who God is and what God's doing like you're participating somehow in all the things that God is. Some people might translate it life of the ages. Some people might translate it as the, the best quality of life imaginable. Super abundant life. But, but y- 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 it's, it's about being caught up in God. Now, of course, you know, if Greek philosophers are using it, they're maybe not concerned with the Judeo-Christian God, so it it might have a slightly different sense. For them, you're caught up in maybe all the gods, or maybe you're caught up in a a sense of wonder. But when Jesus is here talking to another Jew, and the story is being told by Matthew in his gospel, he's also a Jew, they're they're clearly talking about being caught up in the life of Yahweh, the Judeo-Christian God, the God we serve, the God above whom there is none other. And since God is eternal, with no beginning and no end, it's, it's fair to say that that's eternal life. But the, the, the energy of the phrase is not on how long life is, but about experiencing God. About the best quality of life. And if you want to think about what God life is like, or what it's like to be caught up in God, the thing that you're not, I mean, you're not, you're not first thinking about how long that'll be. You know, the defining characteristic of God is not that he's old. So what do we know about God? What's God like? What does the scripture say? God is love. And what does love do? For God so loved the world, he he gave. Love gives. God is love. God is a giver. So this man comes up to Jesus and he says, what good deed, singular, must I do to have the best quality of life imaginable, the God life, the super abundant life of the Almighty for eternity? What's the one thing? And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, you've you got to imagine Jesus saying this with a little twinkle in his eye, right? Would you, Just one thing? You know say just one thing? All right, if you only watch VeggieTales, then you're good. You know. <laughs> if you only listen to Christian radio, that's the one thing you got to do to be good. Why do you ask me about what is good? How can you ask about one good deed, one thing that's going to get you caught up in the super abundant life of Almighty God? Come on, man. How can you possibly get all this from whatever little box you're looking to tick? So Jesus says, "Keep the commandments." And the man says, which ones? Which is hilarious. (laughs) What's the one thing I got to do? Keep the commandments. Which ones? You know, I'll write them down. Okay, genius. And Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Does this sound familiar to anybody? If not, come see me after class. They should. (laughs) should ring a few bells. That's, that's. About half of the Ten Commandments that Jesus lists, which is itself very funny. But Jesus doesn't say, keep the Ten Commandments. He says, keep like these few of the Ten Commandments. Which ones did he leave out? You can really take the Ten Commandments and break them into two big sections. You know, the the commandments that govern our relationship with God, sort of the, the vertical spirituality, you might say. Um, and then the commands that govern our relationship with other people maybe the horizontal spirituality. So, so what are the ones that govern our relationship with God? Do you remember them? Have no other gods before me. There's four. In case you're. Love the Lord your God. Oh no, that's not it. One. No, take that back. I gave you I gave you the finger too early. I remove it. That was a funny thing to say into a microphone. Okay. So so what is it? No, it say no other gods. Yeah, no, no graven image, no idols. Yeah, don't take the Lord's name in vain, and then, and then, yeah, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. These are the ones. So, so the guy says to Jesus, "Which ones do I have to keep?" And Jesus says, "None of the ones about God." Which isn't that funny? Like, don't worry about God; He's got it sorted out. God is not especially concerned with, with you, champ. So then, which ones does He leave in? all the ones about how we engage other people, right? Now, what's the name of the of the man in the story that comes to see Jesus? What do we, we commonly call him? The the rich young ruler. Um, so, he's rich. That means he's got he's got lots of money, he's got lots of property, he's got lots of possessions. He's wealthy. And he's young. And typically young men in the Bible are Lampooned a little bit as being rash, impetuous, um, somewhat foolish. Um, and, then, and then he's a ruler, so he's got some authority over other people. He can make them do what he wants. Now, now, there would not have been many rich young rulers in Jesus' day, in Jesus' area. I mean, there might have been a few, but there wasn't a huge aristocracy. So probably this person was well-known. Oh, here's you know, so-and-so coming to talk to, to Jesus. Pro- probably this meeting between Jesus and the rich young ruler had at least some element of, of you know, paparazzo to it. Oh, what's happening? What's he going to say? Maybe this guy was even excited to meet Jesus. Here's the provocative young rabbi who's you know, raising a ruckus and making everybody angry. I'm going to find out what his take is on, on you know, truly entering eternal life. And Jesus says, look after the people around you. Not one good deed, but orient your life towards the people around you. You have wealth? Look after them. You have youth? Look after them. You have authority? Look after them. These are the commandments. And the young man says, all these I've done since I was a boy. Huh. Perfect. have five. So what else do I have to do? And Jesus said... If you would be perfect, what's the word? Perfect. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it all to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And the young man went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. What was the word? Perfect. I I say we, we often misunderstand this story. Because we we tend to remember it as somebody saying, Jesus, what do I have to do to go to heaven when I die? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And so what we remember is, we're all going to hell. (laughs) Because none of us have done that. I mean, in all the places I've been, all the places I've taught, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christian people, backwards through history, no one I've ever heard of has sold everything and given it to the poor. Certainly no one I've ever met. So, are we all going to hell? (laughs) Or is there something more going on here? What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? in order to experience the best quality of life imaginable, the superabundant life, the God-life, to get caught up in the eternality of the Almighty God. Jesus says, look after other people. I already do that. Well, if you want to be perfect. Now, the Greek word there is teleon, and it doesn't mean perfect as in uh, without flaw. It means perfect like ultimate. Like the best possible version of yourself. Like you've leveled up your skill tree. You've become just the absolute best you that you could be. You have have crested and peaked and and culminated your life. So Jesus said, you want to know what the best possible version of the rich young ruler is? That he would become the formerly rich young giver. Because through transforming yourself from somebody who hangs on and uses and makes rash decisions and stages confrontations, where you, you leave that old person behind and you become instead someone of radical generosity who goes, who gives, who loves and who serves, that's the best possible life imaginable. And that's the best possible version of you imaginable. And the guy goes away sad. Because that would have cost him everything. Which is what Jesus is after. That's what Jesus is after. Now we commonly think that this piece of the Bible is really only about money. Oh, this guy's rich. Jesus says give your money. He won't give his money because he's rich. He's greedy. He's crappy. Thank God we're not like him because we are already crappy, but we're poor, so at least we're, you know. I mean, we, we, we have such a We we twist it around so much so that we look at this guy and we go, his problem was he was wealthy. No, his problem wasn't that he was wealthy. His problem was that his wealth gave him a a false sense of self-sufficiency, a false sense of security. His problem was that he could look at all the good things that he was doing, tick off all the boxes, all these I've been doing since I was a young boy. And as a result, he, he wouldn't go. He wouldn't give. He wouldn't serve. He wouldn't live. So, so he couldn't experience the best of what God had to offer. Now the real question for you and me is, whoa, what's stopping you and me? Not what's stopping him. Because God is knocking on the door of our hearts in the same way that Jesus was knocking on the door of his. So why are we going? What's stopping you from going and giving and loving and serving? What's stopping you from experiencing the best quality of life imaginable where you give and love and serve other people? Because, in the same way that God wants everything from him, God wants everything from you and me. He wants it all. Now, remember, Jesus was an itinerant traveling teacher, right? He went from place to place, town to town. So, if this guy really was going to follow Jesus, not only would he have had to divest himself of his wealth, he would have to sell off all his property and leave it all behind. Like everything that made him feel safe, Jesus was saying, give it up, man. Because there's more out there than safety. There's more out there than security. There's more out there than just listing all the ways you're really good. Now, this was hard for people to understand. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty, Will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven? And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. You've heard this expression clearly. Or easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When I typed it this morning into my computer, autocorrect changed camel to Carmel. It's my wife's name. Very funny mental image, you know. So I called her up and told her, you're going to hell. <laughs> I did not. She has my number blocked. <laughs> There's three ways we might interpret this phrase. Well, first, you could just take it at face value. Jesus saying, look, you can't, you can't get a dromedary through a sewing needle. It's not going to happen. Or, you know, some people say that that there's a a secondary gate around ancient Middle Eastern cities called the Eye of the Needle. It's a smaller gate, maybe about the size of the auditorium doors. It'd be really tricky for a camel to get through that. You'd have to unload it and scooch it. And and then there's also, the the Greek word for camel also means like big, thick piece of rope, like what you'd use to hoist up a ship's anchor. Um, But here's the thing, it doesn't matter. Like all of those interpretations miss the point. Because Jesus was not trying to underscore how comparatively tricky it is for rich people to go into heaven. He's trying to say, this is super freaking hard. God wants everything. And if you don't want to give God everything, you're going to find it really tricky to get caught up in the God life. If you want to follow, you know, maybe six or three of the commandments or something, it's just going to be tricky for you. If God says go and you don't want to go, it's going to be really tricky for you to experience the best quality of life imaginable that God has designed for you if you're always looking for doing the bare minimum. Now back then, if you were wealthy, that was seen within Second Temple Judaism, you know, this period of time, these people. They thought, well, that's a sign of God's blessing. God has blessed you with wealth. Now, I think we tend to see it almost the exact opposite. Now, we we sort of look at the wealthy with suspicion. You know, those are the bad people, the greedy people, you know. But the whole point of the story is that Jesus is needling with people's preconceived ideas. So back then, they're going, aha, wealth is a sign of great spiritual abundance. Now, we think wealth is a sign of great spiritual decay. Don't you think Jesus would poke at our preconceived ideas in much the same way? Don't you think if Jesus was around today, there'd be a story of the, you know, impoverished millennial student drowning in debt? I mean, you know, like, there'd just be a way for him to say, look, the thing that you are armoring yourself in... The thing that makes you feel so good, the thing that reminds you that you're one of the good ones and God's got his hand on you, the thing that makes you smug is the very thing that's keeping you from being obedient to the spirit of God. And it doesn't do us any good to point at all the ways that other people are blind. Oh, you rich, corrupted, greedy gus. Oh, you foolish debt-laden student, I mean, that, who does that serve? If you wanna get caught up in the life of God, if you wanna become the best possible version of yourself with God's help, for God's glory, the person you gotta address is you. What's giving you a false sense of security? What's keeping you from loving and serving other people? What's making you selfish? Rich people can be selfish, poor people can be selfish. It's almost like the amount of money you have isn't really the issue. The issue is, when you engage Jesus and he says go, are you gonna be sad about it or are you gonna go? Go and love and serve others. Go in the name of God. Go with Jesus. Go on the greatest adventure of your life. Or pout. And again and again and again, you and I are forced to wrestle with the fact that God is calling you. Not just us. Not you alone. But you. And he's going to ask you for something tremendously difficult. But if you say yes, the reward is eternal life. Now, in just a moment, we're going to invite you to the front of the church to receive communion. In the fourth century, um, one church theologian referred to communion as the medicine of immortality. I love that. It's such a great phrase. Could you take it like medicine? And like medicine, it heals you. And of course, because today we're talking about eternal life, getting caught up in the life of God. I love the idea that the medicine we take is immortality. It's it's eternal life. It's super abundant life. It's the life of the ages. It's the life God has designed for you since the beginning of the world. So when you come today and you receive the emblems of Christ's body and Christ's life, Imagine yourself being healed, trading out your old life for new life in Christ. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then you come up as we continue to sing and worship. Lord Jesus, thank you that these stories still bear fruit. Thousands of years later, your your clever engagement with people, with ideas, with religion, with philosophy, Lord, you demonstrate to us over and over and over again that there is something more powerful and more precious, more exciting than just ideas or thoughts or religion. The real adventure of a lifetime begins when we say yes to you, when we go where you go, where we love and serve others in the same way that you did. So we ask God that you convict us, Reveal our blind spots and give us the wisdom and guidance to go with you every day of our lives. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.